the scripture for you in the bulletin as well. There's an outline that will help you follow along. My thinking will jump out of 1 Thessalonians, our series this spring for today, for Palm Sunday. Get back to it next week for Resurrection Day. Let's look together, beloved, at Luke 23, 32 to 49. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly We are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. One of the tricks of the trade I used to teach my students when I was a career counselor in my first job years ago at the University of Virginia was a tool called informational interviewing. If you wanted to find out about a job, you simply go talk to as many people as you can find who are associated with that job. You interview them for information. You do that. You want to buy a new cell phone. You want to visit a place on vacation. You're looking for a surgeon. You talk to as many people as you can that have experience with that thing. You collect the voices so you're extremely well-informed about how to move forward. This is essentially what Luke is doing for us in this account of the crucifixion of Jesus. 
we hear at least five voices speaking, tallied, give us critical information to understand this marvelous display of the grace of God for sinners. How do you understand the crucifixion? How do you apprehend at deep levels the grace and the mercy and the love of God for you in Jesus through this event? Listen to the voices. I'll call attention to five. The first, the voice of self-rule. Self-rule. This is the thief. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged, railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. What do you think of that? I find it terribly irrational. This man's life is way out of control, and he's mad at someone else. It reminds me of Proverbs 19, verse 3. When a man's folly brings his life to ruin, he rages against the Lord. This man has lived for himself, by his own rules, and it has landed him in an execution by the Roman government. It is totally irrational to be blaming God for this, saying, get me out of this mess without owning his own culpability. You know, there's something of a thief in all of us. There's a propensity in our hearts to want God on our own terms. Oh yes, I want all those blessings that I know you can heap upon me, but when the day is over, we sort of want to rule ourselves. Take God's blessings, but not joyfully submit to his lordship. I, I read this, and I have to confess to the Lord, I'm a thief. I'm a glory thief. Any time in my life, I fail to give and bring God the glory he deserves. I am stealing from him what he is due. Any act of pride, selfishness, self-promotion, self-sufficiency, self-protection, self-defensiveness, any of that motivated by me is stealing from God his right to have from me total, complete, joyful, humble obedience. I'm a thief. And I'm so grateful Jesus came to save such thieves. How, how do you save yourself from this propensity that's in your heart? How do you get to the place, I, I think this is the place we need to be, where you actually love Jesus more than anything he gives you, including your own breath. Isn't that the safest place to enjoy God's blessings? I love the giver more than anything he can give to me. One way to get to that place, beloved, is to open the word of God and to read it and to meditate on it 
and to think on it and to keep reading it, keep reading it, keep reading it until the Jesus you get to know in the scriptures you love more than life itself. The voice of self-rule. There is power to be delivered from that in the word of God. Secondly, the voice of hero longing. And here I'm looking at the rulers. Verse 35. The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at Jesus saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen ones. The background to this is, I think most of you know, is that the rulers were looking for a Messiah who would bring geopolitical deliverance to them. They had expectation, not totally unwarranted from some Old Testament passages, that Messiah would get these thinking Romans off our backs. And Jesus didn't deliver. He did nothing for them to free them from their physical oppressors. And now they have to mock him for it. And here's what's ironic. When they turn Jesus over to Pilate, this is the very thing they accuse Jesus of. Pilate, he says he's king. You better watch out. He's going to undermine your authority and your rule. Pilate had the last word when he put on the plaque above the cross, king of the Jews. So what's not to like? Jesus is better than a political deliverer. He's God. Only God can change water to wine. Only God can walk on the sea of Galilee. Only God, by his finger, can cast out demons. Only God can command the wind and the waves. Only God can heal as Jesus healed. Only God can take five loaves and two fish and feed 10,000 people with it. Only God can forgive sins. Only God could teach with the authority and wisdom with which Jesus taught. Only God could speak the word into Lazarus' tomb and resurrect him from the dead. Why was Jesus such a large turnoff to these rulers? Or maybe you. Think about the life of Jesus. He loved the unlovely. He empowered the weak. He exalted the humble. He humbled the exalted. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He gave legs to the lame. He was tender with the brokenhearted. He wept the grieving. He spoke truth to those who were confused. He gave hope to those who were desperate. He confronted corruption. He challenged false assumptions about God. And when you live with false assumptions about God, that is always to your peril. Jesus steps in. He wants to reverse that. He revealed God to us. He interpreted the Bible. My goodness, what's not to like? And there's something treacherous about Jesus. just want to warn you. 
if you begin to get to know him, he will see through your facade. A lot of us throw up facades. There's a persona we want to cast to get people to accept us and esteem us so that we can hide from them our truest selves. Jesus sees through that. He knows what you're like, and he loves you anyway. He's the most safe, treacherous person in the world. Find me a better hero, beloved. Find me a better hero. Okay, I don't think any of us would like living in a land oppressed as these rulers were by the Romans. If Jesus had given them 40 years of political freedom, then what? This Jesus buys you with his life and death eternity of peace with God in paradise. Really forces you to think about your priorities. Third verse, voice, excuse me, the third voice speaking at the crucifixion, helping us understand and embrace and and prime the depth of the love of God for us in Christ, the voice of horror. And actually, there are no voices here, but you'd all agree, I hope, that you can hear in people's faces and in their silence horror, much like the pictures of people in downtown Manhattan on 9-11-2001, running from the Twin Towers that are, boring, uh, that are burning and about to collapse. You can see the horror in their faces. They don't have to be saying anything. There are two groups of people I want to isolate. The first is verse 48. The crowds who came for the spectacle left beating their breasts... This was an ancient way of being overcome. Sometimes self-malediction, pronouncing blame on oneself. Clearly they knew something was wrong and perhaps felt some responsibility for it, but they lacked the data to interpret it. They lacked the data to make sense of it. They're leaving and and many people you and I know live here they are in pain over what's wrong with the world they want the world to be different they take no pleasure in political strife disease war corruption you they you don't they don't have to believe in god to experience the awfulness of life as we all confront it. And yet they have no worldview to make sense of it. One of the things that is so immensely compelling about the Christian faith is the worldview the Bible gives you to make sense out of life and all its brokenness. Just think about the way the the Bible begins. It gives you two lenses through which you really can make sense out of life. One is the lens of creation. 
The reason we long for peace, the reason we long for justice, the reason we long for happiness, the reason we long to be loved is because God made human beings for that kind of world. We, we esteem what is beautiful. We want to win. <laughs> That's the world we were created for. The Bible explains so much of what we long for. But secondly, the other lens is the lens of the fall. Sin entered this world. This world is broken. And that lens tells us why people do horrible things to other people. Why there are awful storms that destroy houses. You know, on and on and on. The biblical worldview is incredibly helpful. So Lord, give us opportunities to share this worldview with those who are hurt without it. And then the second group of people I want to call attention to are who are in horror but apparently speechless is verse 49. The women and Jesus' acquaintances were standing at a distance and I'm going to guess speechless. We don't hear anything recorded out of their mouths. I bet there's a lot of tears there. They knew Jesus. They loved this man. They experienced him, a person full of grace and truth, who was profoundly other-centered, of utmost integrity and righteousness, and a fountain of wisdom. They would tell you if you interviewed them, if you did an informational interview with them, what's it like to be with Jesus? They would say something like this. There's just Light in the room. Warmth. There's peace. Truth. Attentiveness. Compassion. Sincerity. Self-control. He always had the right emotion for the situation and the right interpretation for the situation. Whenever you left the presence of Jesus, you felt like, no, I want to stay, I want to stay. There's one town in Samaria, John 4 tells us that when Jesus went there, they stay with us, stay with us, because of what they experienced. These women knew Jesus. So they are feeling the deep injustice of what is happening at a distance. And you have to wonder, when the children sang Psalm 139 this morning, if you go to the end of Psalm 139, something pretty radical is said where David says, Lord, I hate your enemies with an utmost hatred. You have to wonder if Jesus' acquaintances standing at a distance, seeing this happening to this man, they knew he was innocent, are having a holy hatred for these rulers doing this to their Savior. You just have to wonder. And you couldn't blame them if they did. This is horrific. And Jesus, you went down without a fight. You didn't defend yourself. You could have defended yourself. They hurled abuse at you. You took the injustice. I mean, come on. When was Jesus arrested? At night, in a garden. This entourage is coming up from the Hinnon Valley up the hill to Gethsemane. You could see the torches. You could hear the clanging of the swords. Jesus, slip away at night. Get out. You didn't. We're really confused. What does it mean for you, beloved? God does things we don't understand. And sometimes we're simply silent in our trust. And we need time for the meaning to be revealed. 
And there's a tangible element of that in the story. The curtain in the temple was torn in two. One gospel says from top to bottom. That's this thick leather barrier between sinful people and the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. You could not go in there. It represented that the way to a holy God was blocked. If you went in, (laughs) you're going to die in the presence of a holy God. Your sin would consume you. That veil was torn. We need the subsequent revelation of the scriptures to understand, oh, the tearing of the flesh of Jesus was the tearing of that veil guaranteeing access now to a holy God. Jesus has come near to make God safe. We have bold access forever to the throne of God. Well, the point is, that probably wasn't immediately understood at the moment. But when the Spirit had been poured out and we're given the Scriptures, those things come to light. Let me say this to boys and girls. Ask mom and dad to keep teaching you the Bible. Ask them to read you the Bible, to explain the Bible to you. Michael does that with our kids. Melanie and her wonderful group of volunteers does that with our kids. That's just one day a week, boys and girls. Ask mom and dad question after question after. Tell me more about Jesus. Tell me more about the Bible. I know they'd love to. If they won't, you send them to me. Fourth voice. We're trying to understand something of the grace of God in Christ at the crucifixion. The fourth voice is the voice of the other thief. And it's the voice of humility. Why, why do I say humble? His circumstances, partly, he is destitute, but beloved, he's not blaming God. Some people are helpless, but they turn on God because God doesn't help them. Not this man. There's an amazing grace in his heart here called the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord seeing things as they are and responding as you should is the product of two things. Understanding the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, as it were, the unapproachability of God, that God is righteous and just to condemn us of our sins. It is understanding who God is in the glory of his holiness combined with who I am in the ingloriousness of my unholiness. I see my sin. I'm not kidding myself. I've read Proverbs 14.12 this morning. Anybody? Proverbs 14. Just There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. He has stopped trusting his own interpretation of reality. He's using the scriptures. When you combine right sight of who God is, accurate understanding of who we are, and you put those together, you get the fear of the Lord. He has it. He asked the other thief, don't you fear God? That's the product of these things happening in his heart. And so the Holy Spirit has worked faith in him. How do you know from the text what words come out of his mouth that indicate he has faith? Remember me when you come in your kingdom. That is an incredibly bold request. Let's unpack it for a second. This man is in pain, hanging on a cross, next to Jesus. 
What does he know? He knows I am dying for my transgressions. No excuses. I'm getting what I deserve. He says that to the other thief. We're getting what we deserve. He has a clear sense of justice, a clear apprehension of his own guilt. I'm dying for my transgressions. And he looks at Jesus. You're dying for whose transgressions? Not Jesus' own transgressions. He doesn't have any. This man's done nothing wrong. So in the economy of God, for whose transgressions is Jesus dying? The thief reasons, mine. Only one person has to pay the price for your sins. And he realizes Jesus has come in mercy to take what he did not deserve so I can get what I don't deserve. Salvation, grace, eternity. He sees not just the mercy of God, but in a sense the justice of God. That God must punish your sins and he justly does so in the body of Jesus. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I doubt this man knew this word, but what this man had in Jesus and what you have in Jesus, if you call on his name, is you have a surety. A surety. A surety is a person who assumes responsibility for the debts of another person. If you want to live forever in paradise, you must ask Jesus to be your surety, to assume the debt of your sin. This man has done that. He knows, nailed to a cross, he can't offer God a life of good works. There's no amount of good this man can do, even if he wasn't on the cross, that would endear God to him. Jesus has done the good work, and Jesus has paid the penalty. Glory! Glory, glory, glory. He had faith. This man is enough. Jesus is his surety. What's the proof you get that? I mean, how many hours do you have, right? Here's one. (laughs) It's the way you treat those with whom you disagree. And the way you treat those who you find deplorable. Or the way you treat those who accuse you of something. That's one test. You get this. You've said, remember me, Jesus. It changes everything about the way you treat people because look at how Jesus has treated you. He makes his enemies his best friends. Finally, is the voice of hope. Fifth voice we hear helping us understand this glorious cacophony of voices helping us grasp the depths of the grace of God for us in Christ. It's the voice of hope. It does come indeed from the lips of Jesus. What I mean by hope is confident assurance and certainty that what God says is absolutely and eternally true. The voice of hope. And we hear three words from Jesus. First, his plea, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Oh my goodness. What is Jesus saying to his father? Kill me in the place of those who should be on this cross. God will overlook your ignorance. God will overlook your rebellion. 
God would have you His own, to what depth will He go? For Jesus to say, Father, forgive them, He is saying, crush me with the wrath due these sinners. He was crushed for you. You will never be condemned for your sins. Never. Third is the promise. Today you will be with me, you'll be with me in paradise. Everything you need to be accepted by God is in Jesus. Stop looking in yourself. Don't look at anybody else. It's all in Jesus. We could say a lot more about it, but I'm, I'm ready to close. And finally, the ground of the voice of hope. As Jesus says, quoting Psalm 31, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. What is that telling you? His work, saving his people, his work, cleansing you once and for all, all time of your sin, his work, making you perfectly acceptable to the Father, his work is done. He's going back to the Father in spirit. The Father has accepted what his Son did. It's equivalent, I think it's in the Gospel of John, to to tell us die, those words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished, it's done, the debt's paid. Finished. Your salvation is finished. You have nothing to prove to God. You are free to struggle, no longer struggling to be free. Thank you, Jesus. Don't seek, beloved, to find your worth anywhere else. It's all in Christ. And there's another event that guarantees this sacrifice was accepted. We'll look at it next week. Let's pray. Thank you for my beloved brothers and sisters. Thank you for the appetite you have given them for the word of God. Thank you for the way you have brought them to Jesus, for the ways they are centering their lives around this cross. Thank you that you will forgive and receive glory thieves. All the ways our disobedience has hurled abuse at you, all the ways, even knowing your glorious reign, we are tempted to self-rule. Thank you for the triumph of this cross, grace always greater than our sin. What hope, what a Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Please stand and